0: I'm going to entitle The Heart, The Heart of a Lion. When I was nine years old, my parents took me to one of my very first ever featured films. And because I didn't grow up in church, my theology at best was shaky, right? Uh, at best, it was shaky. But I knew that when I watched this film, that it was really about something greater than myself. And this film particularly was about something greater than the characters that represented. And it was certainly greater than just the plot that had been crafted. It was greater than the characters of the theater that I was sitting in. And as the lights came down and the film came on, this is what I saw. Oh, come on. How good is that? It's good, right? The Lion King in 2016, the film was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry of the very Library of Congress. It came out in 1994. I told you I was nine years old when I went to the theater in Chattanooga, Tennessee to watch this movie, but I am dumbfounded by this stat. Did you know that Disney made more than $1 billion off of The Lion King? $1 billion after The Lion King. And what a greater sermon or, or better timing than Disney Plus this week, right? So Disney Plus is, is the craze right now. But it's really amazing when you think about this film. We have to start asking ourselves, what is it about the lion that we love? Like, like we cheer when we see Simba, right? When he's presented, you know, we see Simba, he's he's regal, right? I mean, he is an iconic figure in Disney. What is it about the lion that... We love so much. Another way you can ask that question is, what is at the heart of the lion? What is at the heart of the lion that causes us to champion and rally behind him? Did you know there's over 10 references in the scripture to Jesus Christ being the lion of the tribe of Judah? What is it that's in the heart of a lion? You know, my wife and I, I finally got her trained. No, I'm just kidding. I don't have her trained, but she certainly has... She certainly has adapted and uh, over the last few years, I'm an outdoorsman and so I loved as we lay in the bed at night, we would watch uh, Planet Earth, that was a great documentary or we'd watch Animal Planet or Discovery Channel and my wife has just in the last few months really come around, really, really come around. She's like, man, this is so, this is so relaxed and I'm like, babe, that's why you need to become a deer hunter, Okay. This is, this, is, this is what I'm trying to prove to you, okay? And so, so the other night, kid you not, I had nothing to do with it. I got, jumped in bed. I wasn't even watching TV. She turns on Netflix and goes to the continue watching uh, line and goes to where the lions are hunting down prey. And she turns it on and starts watching. I'm like, who am I married to? That's what I'm talking about, guys. And she's watching this Discovery Channel Animal Planet video. My favorite thing to do when I watch that is to watch the lions. I mean, they're awesome. I love them. Did you know, some of you who probably don't watch Animal Planet, maybe you didn't know this, did you know it is the females? Hey, girls, it is the females, not the males. The female lions who do all the work. All the work. Did you know that? The females do all the hunting. Females do all the tracking. Okay, my wife was giving me some big eight mens in the last gathering right now. They finally take down this several thousand pound animal. Once they take it down, then they drag it over to the pride. I mean, it's crazy. Did you know? know If you knew this or not, lions are only successful about 30% of their strike attacks. So 70% of their attacks end in disappointments. 70% they get no kill. So this is a lot of work. Lions have a lot of work, okay? And then something crazy happens. My wife was a little flabbergasted when we watched this. She, the mom, the wife, she runs over and drives the animal, attacks it, knocks it down, brings it to its death, and then she drags the animal all the way over to the pride, and then she does the unthinkable. Okay, She actually, when she gets it in the middle of the pride, she steps back and she lets, that's right, she lets the male lion eat first. <laughs> So here's my wife watching this. And she's like, I'm watching my sister work in the hard African heat. Okay, This is not the most conducive environment to chasing things. My sister is here working hard, sweating out her mouth. Chasing down these impalas and kudus and elephants and all these different... And, and, and by the way, they're only 30% successful, right? And when she finally gets it, she drags it over. And this dude, who's been laying in the shade all day with his tail swatting flies, stands up and walks over. He's like, uh, what's for dinner? Oh, this is good. This is, you know." And, and she willingly steps back and watches it. She allows him... To eat first. Now at this point, ladies are mad, right? The steam's coming out of their ears. But did you know? Did you know? Here's what I did not know that I want to share with you today. Here's the trade-off. There's a trade-off. The female lion knows, and every cub in that pride knows, they realize and have come to understand that if danger comes, if danger ever comes to the pride, if scar ever comes to try to wreak havoc on the pride lands, if there is any kind of intrusive danger to the pride, he, the dad, is going into battle first. It's a trade-off. So essentially what she wants is she wants him to be well fed because she knows this is the deal. That he looks at all the other lions in the pride and he says, listen to me. If somebody wants to get to you, they will have to go through me. If they want to get to you, they're going to have to pass through me. Is it any wonder then why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah? In Revelation chapter 5, John is on the island of Patmos. He has an apocalyptic vision where Jesus comes and visits him. He's not seen his savior and 60 plus years. And he falls like a dead man. This is not poetic language of John the Revelator. This is really what happens when you see God in his glorified state. And he falls as a dead man. He begins to get this vision, this heavenly vision. And the Bible says that one of the 24 elders there in the heavenly vision said to him, because they could not open the scroll, the scroll was no one worthy enough to open. it. he said, stop weeping. He said, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the heir to David's throne has won the victory. He's not trying to win the victory. He's already won it. What's this. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is the last book of the Bible. But did you know that Jesus shows up as the Lion of the tribe of Judah long before that? In fact, in the first three chapters of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve had already been tempted and she had been deceived and she had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Lord God comes to the woman and says, What is this have you done? What have you done? And the woman said, What? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, I actually like this change a lot because, because it reminds me, God's not just like a lion. God's not just like God. God is also a dad. And you can see it very clearly here. I don't know if you've ever had this experience before, but I certainly have, where you're getting in trouble by your parents, and your parents are on top of you. You know, they're getting you're getting in trouble, and, and dad's like, What have you done, Craig? Are you kidding me, Craig? You ever had this happen before? I had this many, many times, okay? Like... What are you doing? I told you to put your helmet on before you do donuts on your 80 Suzuki four-wheeler with all of the girlfriends of the neighborhood watching you, right? Shattered my knee, my patella, broke my helmet in half. I mean, literally sprinted on a broken knee. But there were many times in my life, Dad would come, are you kidding me, Craig? Like, what have you done? And I'm always like, you don't understand, Dad. You don't understand, Mom. The neighbor told me, Right? My boyfriend told me, right? But you don't understand, the girlfriend told me, right? The kid down the block, sometimes I would even say, but dad, my sister, dad, it was Jennifer. It was Jennifer who did it. And all of a sudden, my dad will stop, and God does the same right here in Genesis 3, and my dad will stop and say, hold on, he did what? Hold on, hold on, she said, what to you? Hold on, He, he did what to you? Oh, no, no. No, you're in trouble, you stay right here, we'll come back to you. And then he runs down the block, then he goes to the next door neighbor. He goes and gets my sister, and he calls my friend, whatever he does. And he said, you said what to my son? You said what to my child? You did what to my daughter? Jesus does the exact same thing right here in this passage. She has fallen, the serpent has deceived her, and look what God does as the father who enters in as the protective dad there in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, look what he says. He says, I will cause hostility to the serpent between you and the woman, Eve. okay, The woman of creation and between your offspring and her offspring. Watch this. He will strike your head. He will crush your head. Who? The offspring of Eve. And you will strike his heel. In other words, let me paraphrase it for you. Essentially, God, the father, dad, is looking at his daughter and looking at the serpent and saying, Listen, serpent, you want to get to my kids? You will go through me. You want to touch my kids? You're going through me. You have messed with the lion of the tribe of Judah. You want to strike their heel? I will crush your head. Check the text, ladies. Check the text, fellas. It's right there. Listen to this, girls. You ready? Listen, girls. You want to mess with my daughter? God says, I will crush your head. You want to mess with my daughter? I will strike your head. I am a lion and this is my tribe. This is what I want for all of you in this church. If I could have and live in a magical world, I would want all of us to have the heart of a lion. You say, Craig, what do you mean when you say a heart of a lion? I want the people in this church who call Dwelling Place home. It's my ambition that when the people who call this church home, when you come to church and and you know that when you come to church, no matter what you're going through, when I sit down with Pastor Craig or when I sit down with Pastor Chad or when I sit down with my Connect Group leader, if the devil wants to get to me, he's going to have to go through him. I want the people in my life to know that, listen, as long as I'm in the presence of my pastor, as long as I'm in the presence of my son or as long as I'm in the presence of my father if you want to get to me Satan then you're going to have to go through I want to be able to look at my family within the eyes, at least. Come on, folks. Can't we at least do it for our own moms? Can't we do it at least for our own children, for our own spouses? Maybe you can't do it for everybody in your job. Maybe you can't do it for everybody in your school. But can you do it for your best friend? Can you do it for your girlfriend? Can you do it for your boyfriend, your wife, your husband? Can you look at your spouse in the eyes and say, The devil wants to get to you. No, 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 no. He's going to have to go through Me, I am a lion for you. I will pray harder than he can work in your life. I will pray harder for you than Satan can operate. Prayer matters, by the way. Listen, let me let me let me tell you my soapbox thing that is really on my heart right now for our congregation. Okay, that we as we mature and continue to grow as a congregation. Here's my heart, and I want you to hear it. Okay, I pray that when we continue to grow, we move away. From the prototypical, casual statements that so, so many Christians make today. You say, Craig, what do you mean? When we say, I'm praying for you. When we look at a brother or sister in Christ and we say, I'm praying for you. It should not mean that I'm lending a fleeting thought to you. Okay? We do that in our culture, and so much so we forget about it. It just means I'm thinking about you for two or three seconds, and then we see them next Sunday, you didn't pray for them, so as they're walking up to you, you quickly pray so that when they ask you, you can tell them, hey, I've been praying for you. It's, you know, it's 27 seconds ago, but I've been praying for you, man. I've been praying for you, sister, Right? No, 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 folks. When we say I'm praying for you, can I just tell you what that actually means? It means figuratively you are grabbing that dear person by the hand. Sometimes even against their own will. And you are running up to the throne of our heavenly father. And you're pleading with him on his or her behalf. That is praying for someone. And we should not say that lightly. In fact, we could say history, the history of the world belongs to intercessors who are willing to believe God's future into being. It is not a stretch of the biblical text to say all of history has been shaped by intercession. God did things on the earth that God would not do had God's people not prayed. Yes, history belongs to intercessors who believe and pray God's future into being, into the reality of where they live. And since we're on the topic, let me just go ahead and hit it. Did you know prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of your dependency on God? What do you mean, Craig? The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. And the things you don't pray about or you neglect to pray about are the things you trust yourself to handle. Whatever you don't pray about, you are trusting you that you can handle it. And the things that you pray about are the things that you know you can't handle and you're trusting to God. But the reality is... As God continues to grow us, there should be nothing that we don't pray about in our life. That God, I'm trusting and dependent on you for everything. There was a season in my life where God had gone really, really silent. It was a challenging season. And in that time frame, when God was silent, many of you have been through seasons like this, God spoke one word to me. One word. And it was like rhema for my soul. I was so excited, I left my office of devotion and went to my wife and we cried together and prayed together, and the Lord spoke to me one deal. I was reading through 1 Kings, and, um, and many, many times when you're seeking to commune with God in His Word, it feels like He's not communing back. At least it feels that way, if you've ever been there before. And I'm reading through 1 Kings. And I'm going through 1 Kings, and it's amazing because Solomon, the son of, uh, of, 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 of really an adulterous affair, okay, he is stepping up to the plate in leadership, and God asks him. It's like a genie in a bottle moment, right? And he asks him, if you could have any wish, I'll grant you a wish. And when he does, Solomon asks rightly. He asks righteously. He says, I want wisdom, right? God gives him wisdom and blesses him with all the other things that others ask for. But notice what this text says. I was reading this, and it was like this phrase. My goodness, it jumped off the page. The Bible said when he asked for wisdom, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly, watch this, Great understanding. Now, here's the part that, 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 that wrecked me. And largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. And when I read that, the Lord spoke to me that day. Very clear prophetic word if I've ever heard the Lord. And he said, Craig, in this season, I'm enlarging your heart. Whew, that was that was manna. I'm making your heart bigger. Now, what would anyone do? You're going to start thinking, what in the world does that mean? Yeah. So i was ferociously, voraciously searching scriptures to find out, God, what is? Come on, lead me. Holy Spirit, lead me. What do you mean you're giving me a larger heart? And I came across Psalm 119, and Psalm 119 is a very uh, acrostic, poetic style. It's beautiful how David writes it. But in Psalm 119, verse 32, David says, I will run in the way of your commandments. Watch this. When, literal translation, if you enlarge my heart's. I'm going to run in the way of your commandments if you enlarge my heart. Now, that was crazy because David is saying, I will run with the law of God once you enlarge my heart. Now, this is such an interesting expression, very poetic. The word run in Hebrew is this word arutz, which literally means run or to run. Now today running is something very common. We run, we jog, we run races, we run from the rain, we run from class to class so that we're not tardy. But in the actual old Semitic world, did you know running was not actually that common? They moved at a slower pace. In fact, the Semitic origins of the word arutz, which is the Hebrew word for run, it actually renders run as, and was used as a courier, watch this, who ultimately this courier is making great haste to meet his king and bring him a message. So if someone was to run, they were a courier that had to get to their king to give a message. And the picture here is of David running. What is he running with? With the commandments of God to not only fulfill them and share them with others, but to actually what reach his king as soon as possible so that he can be greeted by his king. He can share with his king. But check out the rest of the verse. This is what got me. He will only do it when God enlarges his heart. This last week or a couple weeks ago, I was reading an article about the rankings of the greatest athletes in the 20th century. I was surprised to see that the 35th greatest athlete in the 20th century went by the name of Secretariat. That's right. A horse was the 35th greatest athlete of the 20th century. Century. Secretariat, or Big Red, as he was known, was considered the greatest racehorse in history. I went on YouTube this week and I actually watched the footage of where Secretariat won, um, won the, the Triple Crown at Belmont Stakes. He finished the race, catch this y'all, at 31 lengths. 31 lengths ahead of the next horse. No other horse in all of human history and all of racing has ever done that previous to that and has ever done that since that. Well, after Secretariat died, they did an autopsy on his heart. And the autopsy revealed that his heart weighed 22 pounds, which was two and a half times the size of a normal horse heart. His heart was 22 pounds. Two and a half times the size of a normal horse heart. Now, this is rare. This is is rare, but not unheard of for this type of bloodline. However, never has such a horse with such an enlarged heart accomplished so much. He indeed could not run unless he had the enlarged heart, but there was a second element he had to actually want to run. And I'm gonna tell y'all, I know this sounds weird, but when I'm watching this footage of him, when he actually takes off, Secretariat moves ahead of Sham and he gets out like one sixteenth of a mile in front of this other horse. I felt something spiritual watching this. I mean, I really did. I felt something spiritual. I read a book. Some time ago by Lawrence Scanlon, he wrote a book called The Horse That God Built. And in this book, he makes the case that much of the success behind Secretariat was not just a 22-pound heart, but it was also a man of the faith named Eddie Sweat. Eddie Sweat was a strong believer, Secretariat's groom, and it was the man who spent the most time with him. Now, he loved, he spent his life around horses, but he died penniless yet he seemed to have this supernatural connection between Secretariat and himself. And there have been many racehorses with an enlarged heart, yet it took something more to take Secretariat the champion he was. I I personally believe there was some spiritual element involved in this connection between Secretariat. And yes, it was an enlarged heart that gave Secretariat the ability to run and, and to set world records that still remain unbroken, but Secretariat had to want to run. And it just makes me wonder when I read Psalm 119, verse 32, did... Did Secretariat actually feel pleasure? Did he enter into a portal of feeling pleasure when he ran? Like he felt God's pleasure. It reminds me of Eric Little, right? Eric Little ran. He skipped ultimately the the missionary to China, mission field, and he became the Olympian athlete, right? And it was an amazing, amazing story. But then I started studying him more. You see, the word for run in Hebrew is this word, arutz, which is spelled, the Hebrew letters, aleph, resh, vav, and sad. Okay, which is amazing because the aleph in Hebrew represents a unity with the resh, which represents the Holy Spirit, and the vav is a connection with the natural to perform a humble task. So it's almost like God is saying with running, God gives us an enlarged heart to run, watch this, faster and further to feel God's pleasure. That God enlarges our hearts so that we can experience His pleasure when we run. Now listen to me, y'all. This is where it really became sense to me and just became rhema. God has Given us just like you did David a humble task of taking his word and running with it to share it with other people. And David is saying, I will run with your word, God, if you'll enlarge my heart. When you enlarge my heart, I will run, God. No matter how I look at this word, the word Rekev, which is enlarge or, 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 or expand, enlarging his heart. It is literally saying God is continually enlarging our hearts to run with His word. That means that God will strengthen your emotional heart. God will strengthen your spiritual heart. God will strengthen your metaphysical heart. Why? Why? You may have a heart today that's broken. You may have a heart today that's wounded or just worn out. Maybe you're in so much emotional agony that you just can't make another move and yet when you still pick up the word of God and feel God's pleasure you want to run with it. But your unable to run because of the troubles and the sorrows. You can't run so God says, hey, I'm going to enlarge your heart. And he enlarges your heart. Why? So that you can run with his commands. Secretariat didn't need to run 31 lengths ahead of the other horses but he ran 31 lengths ahead of the other horses because he was running for the pleasure and to finish that finish line as soon as possible. God does not need To enlarge our hearts to win the race. We will win the race. He gives us that enlarged heart to reach into the the portal. Into God's pleasure as soon as possible. He enlarges our hearts. say, Craig, what do you mean he enlarges our hearts? Well, in that season that God spoke to me and said, I'm enlarging your heart. It really wrecked me. I mean, it really, really wrecked me. It, it brought such encouragement, but yet at the same time, it was just clarifying. And, and I began to think God not only enlarged my heart, but I started praying for this congregation for months. Would you enlarge the hearts of those in this congregation? You say, Craig, why would you pray that? Did you know one of our early church fathers, St. Augustine? One of his most famous prayers is he prayed that God would enlarge his heart because he said, The cavern of my heart was too small for your plan. He said, I need you to grow the cavern of my heart. When given opportunity for Solomon to ask whatever he wants to ask, what does he ask for? He asks for wisdom. And when you ask for wisdom, God immediately starts the working of the enlargement of your heart—not just a brilliant mind, but a compassionate heart; not just an informed mind, but an inflamed heart, and empowered hands. That's a disciple—an informed mind, an inflamed heart, and empowered hands. And God says, "I want to." engage and i want to grow your heart solomon listen listen i know when you ask for an enlarged heart when you ask for wisdom and god starts that process it god wants us to trust him even though we don't understand the operation and when he starts operating on us it feels like it feels like that he's ripping our hearts out at times but listen to me our cooperation helps him to enlarge our hearts if we will trust listen you will never suffer for a god you don't trust you won't do it You'll back out. You'll jump out. But when you trust him, then God begins to enlarge your heart. You say, God, why, Craig, why does God want to do this? Here's why God wants to do this. Because his heart embraces the whole world. He wants your heart to be bigger. He wants you to understand his love for everybody. Why does he do this? Because all human needs are met in Jesus Christ. Why does God enlarge our heart? In order that our hearts might contain his leading, might contain his plan, might contain his leadership. There are so many things God wants to put in your heart, but he's got to enlarge Your heart. You say, Craig, how does God enlarge my heart? I'm going to give you three simple things of how God enlarges your heart. Gives you the heart of a lion. Here's how he does it. Number one, through the daily engagement with spiritual disciplines. In other words, the spiritual elements like prayer and the word of God and right choices. Here's a big one. In the midst of temptation. Oh, you want your heart to grow? Go back into the same temptation you faced for the last few years and say no to it. And see if a cavern doesn't increase. And not only that, but fasting, man, fasting is the most underrated way to grow your heart. Some of you, this next year is going to be a year where you set forth fasting as a spiritual discipline that's viable in your life. Some of you, you're going to feel the leadership of the Holy Spirit to fast the first three days of every month. January 1, 2, 3, February 1, 2, 3, March 1, 2, 3. You do that 12 times 3, 36 days, you fasted 1 twelfth of the entire year. Others of you, maybe you're not going to fast January 1, 2, 3, February 1, 2, 3, but you're going to fast every Saturday of 2020. And you're going to fast till sundown. You wake up, you don't eat anything until sundown. But it becomes a viable part of your life. Why? Because fasting enlarges your hearts. It enlarges your heart. Here's another way that we enlarge our heart, or that God enables us to have larger hearts, is through suffering. That which comes upon us that we have no control over. It's, it's given, he said in Philippians 1 it's given unto us to suffer for his name's sake. You want an enlarged heart? God enlarges through suffering. Here's the third one. This is good gospel news, folks, because we often believe the opposite. You know how it's God enlarges our hearts? Through our mistakes and our failures. Oh, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Through our mistakes and our failures. They are our best friend if we learn from them. God takes them and he enlarges our hearts. Did you know the disciples, I was reading again this week. They fell 31 times in the gospel of Mark. And every time Jesus shows up, he uses that failure to enlarge their hearts. To make them more expansive. These are opportunities to enlarge the heart. But I started thinking, why in the world, if Christ is the lion, I get that. But have you ever wondered why he chose to go through the lion of the tribe of Judah? I've wondered that. Because through this story, y'all, it's, it's a little bit strange. Why did God choose to, to make his son, Davidic heir, to go through the tribe of Judah? Now, I'm not sure how much you know about the Old Testament and Judah, but, but I read the story and I'm, I'm like, really, God? Like, this is your man? <laughs> like, Judah's your man? I mean, there are parts in the story that are weird, y'all. Okay, surprising, awkward passages. If you were in Royal Rangers, they did not felt board these in Sunday school. I promise you, you had no VBS off of this story. You know, there's one story where Judah, he goes to sleep with a prostitute, ends up being his daughter-in-law. Okay? You don't felt board that one. No puppets. I mean, that's a weird one, Okay? That's the weird one. I'm like, God, are you serious? Like, this is your man? This is your guy? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at why God chose the tribe of Judah. But the only way we can learn why God chose the tribe of Judah is we've got to look at the story of Joseph. We've got to look at the story of Joseph to see why God chose the tribe of Judah. Now, what is the story of Joseph? Remember the story of Joseph? He has a dream. He tells his brothers he gets thrown into a pit. He has a coat of many colors. They act like animals, rabid beasts had destroyed him. He stays in the pit. Ishmaelites come by, sold into slavery, goes into Egypt. Right? His whole life, 20 plus years of just pain. Utter disappointment. You say, Craig, what does the story of Joseph tell us? Let me tell you something. The story of Joseph reminds us that you can be in God's servant and be God's servant and still experience a struggle. Did you hear me well? You can be God's servant and still experience a struggle of a lifetime. We get this wrong, y'all. We tend to think that if I'm in God's favor, I won't experience failure. I'm here to tell you that is a lie. It's a lie. You can be in God's favor and still experience failure. Let me just go ahead and say this. I would make the case that failure is actually a part of the promise of God. That you are going to fall. The righteous man's going to fall seven times and get back up again. You know, uh, Gary Chapman has five love languages. Well, God's got a love language that's better than those five love languages. And you know what God's love language is? God's love language is trust. Are you going to trust me this time even when it doesn't make sense? And God does it, man. He does it. He forces us to go into situations that are so fear-driven and so fearful. Why? Because it requires we have faith. And God's love language is trust. Are you going to trust me now, Craig? And Joseph will find himself in a pit, right? I mean, he's in a pit. And by the way, it's not of his own doing. And it's not of his own choice. Sometimes we find ourselves in the pit and it's not our fault. Pastor Craig, I wanted a dad and I got a pit. I wanted a mom and I got a pit. I wanted a boyfriend and I got a pit. I wanted a spouse. And I got a pit. I wanted a friendship and here friendship, and here I sat in a, in a pit and it's no fault of my own. It's no fault. I'm telling you the scriptures show us that the same God who was in Joseph's pit is the same God who was in Joseph's palace. The same God who is in Joseph's prison is the same God who is in Joseph's palace. You listen to me. God is no nearer to Joseph in the palace than when Joseph is in the pit. God is no nearer to, to Joseph when he is in the prison than when he is in the palace. Joseph's story shows us. Can I tell you what it really shows us? Here's what it shows us that God is most powerfully present when it seems he is most apparently absent. That's what Joseph's story tells us. That God is most powerfully present in the seasons of life when he seems most apparently absent. It's the same God, y'all. Pit, prison, palace. Same God every season of life. God never forsook him. Now I don't know what pit you're setting in today. I don't know what prison you're setting in today. I don't know what low point you're setting in today, but maybe the devil's tempting you and maybe the devil's been whispering in your ear. And let me tell you something. I know he's whispering in your ear this because he whispers in jacked up preacher boys ear this. So if he's, if he's, if he's, if he's whispering in your ear, I know he's, or my ear, he's whispering in your ear too. And you find yourself in the bottom of a pit and here's what he says. If he loved you, you wouldn't be here. If he loved you, you would not be here. If he loved you, that would have not gone haywire. If he loved you, there's no way this would have taken place. If God really loved you, there's no way. Listen to me. You've got to hear me. The story of Joseph says that is not true. Hear me. Hear me on this. Hear me on this. Your circumstances do not correlate with God's presence in your life. Your circumstances do not correlate with God's presence in your life. God is present in your life, period, period. People say to me, people say, Pastor Craig, I prayed and then I cried and then I tried and I don't feel anything. Listen, I'm going to shoot straight with you today. I don't care if you feel it. I don't care, honestly, if you feel it. I'm being real with you. I don't care if you feel it or not. The Bible says and the scripture promises that he will never, ever cast away a cry for mercy. I don't care if you're blind Bartimaeus and the disciples are trying to push you off to the side. Your cry for mercy will touch his ears every single time. Every single time. And he doesn't see your cry as an interruption. He sees it as his ministry. I don't care if you don't feel it. It doesn't matter if you feel it or not. I'm telling you, he's there. He's there. Oh, it's good to invite God into our circumstances, but there's really no need to it. He's already in every circumstance. He's already in it. He's in every single one of them. It's almost like, oh, I'm going through a hard time. Now I'm going to invite God in. God's in the hard time with you. No need for Joseph to invite God into the pit. He's in the pit with him. It's part of the process. He's in the prison with him. You lean into God, he'll lean into you. If you call on God, he shows up. Period. I never forget this. One time I had a student say to me, a student who had been abused, a student had a really tough childhood, and don't miss this, I had a student tell me, he said, if God is real, he's angry and he's a misogynist. He hates women. If God is real, he is angry. And everything in me, because he's speaking about my king, immediately comes up, and I'm ready to defend my king. And I'm ready to say something. And as I'm tempted to respond, I heard the Holy Spirit say to me, He said, Don't you say anything. Let him get it out. I never forget that. If God is real, he's angry. And I remember. And the Holy Spirit said, No, 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 don't you tell you that. You let him get out. And it was at that moment that I. Learned that God cared more about this one student than defending his own character. God doesn't need you to defend him. He's a big God. He said, let him get it out because it's a wrong perception. And God's okay because he can change that perception. He can meet us in the midst of a pit, he can meet us in the midst of a prison. I want you to remember this. God isn't demanding your righteousness. He is providing you righteousness. He's not demanding you righteousness. He's providing. And this is important. Why? Because George Barna says 72% of Christians in America see God as angry. 72% of us see God as vengeful, see God as mad, see God as distant. I'm here to tell you God is not angry. This relationship was never about what you can give to God. It's about what he gave to you in Christ. He's not mad at you. He has given you righteousness. He says, I require mercy, not sacrifice. I'm giving you righteousness. And by the way, here's why that matters, y'all. Here's why it matters. I read this book called How God Changes Your Brain. It's excellent. And Andrew Newberg, who's a leading neuroscientist, this is what he said. And this is the quote that stuck with me. He said, this is why it matters. He says, the God you believe in is the God you become. So if you believe God's anger, you'll become angry. If you believe God is vengeful, you'll become vengeful. If you believe God is loving, you'll become loving. The God you believe in is the God you become. If I believe that God is angry and God is full of judgment and God is full of vengeance, Pastor Craig, is God only saving certain people? Is He only saving certain people who have some political understanding? Or is He the God of the harvest, which means He is here for everybody? And He wants my heart. To be enlarged to fit everybody. This is our job, y'all. This is our job to be lions for the people we work with. To be lions for the people we go to school with. To be lions for the people who who who, who, who are on our child's baseball team. To be lions for the people we eat our lunches with. To be lions. You would be a lion for them and say, If the devil is going to get to you, he will have to go through me. So the Lord gave me that word. Several weeks have passed and it wasn't getting better. You got... It got harder in that season of my life. And when I was in that season, a really low moment. I never forget. I was in Chattanooga, and my wife and I, we were hanging out at her parents' house. And a pastor friend of mine who lives in Shelbyville, who I preach for often, he, um, he had a lady in his church named Mandy who had never met me, but she had been in services that I would preached at. And I never forget that night, he, he sent me a text message. Here it is, Rayma. He sent me a text message, and it was a screenshot of a picture that Mandy's husband was taking of his wife. And in that night, at that very moment, the Lord had put me on her heart. And she was kneeling in her bedroom crying and interceding for me. And they've never met me. And she's crying for me. And, and, and this happened for hours. And he sent me this picture and he said, hey, you do with it what you will. But the Lord has given her a prophetic word. And here's what the Lord said to her. That I'm giving Craig the heart of a lion. Now God doesn't do that stuff with me. I'm the kind of guy who, when I was growing up in church, when the, when the prophet came through prophesying over people, if he passed me up, I, I took a step back, went all the way down the line, and jumped back in the line. I thought, I thought when he came down, he's going to get me again, and he, pissed, he passed me again. That was a bad word. He, he passed me again. I took a step back, went on down the line, jumped in again. He would always constantly pass me. God never spoke to me that way. And y'all, when I got that word, oh, my goodness, it was like Ramah. Oh, it was like fresh bread out of the oven. God is going to give us the heart of the line. He's going to enlarge your heart. So, Craig, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the story. Genesis chapter 44. This is so powerful. Now, this is, this is Judah. This is the same Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law. I want to read this passage. Let me give you the context They're in Israel, the brothers of Joseph. They're there because there's a famine. They're in Egypt. There's a famine in Israel, and they need to go get some bread. They need to go get some food. So Judah is talking. Joseph had secretly put a relic from the palace in Benjamin's bag, the younger brother. And he put that relic in his bag, and they come walking up to the guards. And the guards say, have you stolen anything from the king or from the Pharaoh, from his palace? And what does Judah say? Judah looks at this guard, and he says, no, no, we didn't steal from you. We know it. And whatever, he said, whoever stole from you, let him stay and be your slave. And all of the rest of our brothers can go back to Israel. Well, the guard cuts open the sacks, and here's this relic. Falls out of Benjamin's sack on the ground. And this is what Judah says. Now listen, see if you see a heart of a lion here. See if you see a lion heart. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So now if the boy, he said to the guard, is not with us when I go back to your father... And if my father, whose life is so bound up with the boy's life, they're so close, they're so tight, if he sees that the boy isn't there, my father will die. He's going to perish. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. He loves that boy. He said, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety. I put my life on the line for Benjamin. I told my dad I'll bring him back safely. You can put my head on the chopping block. I said, if I don't bring him back to you, I'm going to bear the blame before you, Father, all of my life. Look what the next verse says. So now then, please let your servant remain here. Let me be sacrificed, not for... Let me sacrifice self for others, not sacrifice others for self. In other words, let me be here. I'll be the slave, and then let that boy go back home. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? No, no, no. Don't let me see the misery that would come upon my father does that sound like a line to you if somebody wants to get to him he's going to have to go through me Y'all what if we lived a life like this it's not good enough y'all, for me to get to heaven and for you to get to heaven and I believe when I get to heaven God's going to say Craig it's so good to see you this is awesome it's amazing well done good and faithful servant I hope I hear well done good and faithful servant but you know what God's really going to say to me it's not enough for him to say oh this is awesome you know what he's going to say Craig it's awesome you're here but where is the boy where's the boy Craig don't get me wrong Craig I'm happy you're here but I put Jason in your 6th grade math class Where's Jason? Oh, you lived by that guy for 32 years? You think I just happenstance to put you in that house? Where is your neighbor? Where's the boy? Where's the boy? I put you in that job next to that cubicle next to that lady? Catherine, where's Catherine? Where is she? Craig, are you kidding me? Where is your mother? Craig, you won a church, but you lost your three kids? Where are your kids? Craig, where is your dad? Can you not at least be a line for your dad? Where's your dad? Come on, you only had one life. Are you serious? I'm happy you're here. But where's your neighbor? This message was not just for you. Did you get confused? It was for everybody. And that's why I put you through the trial so your heart would get large enough to include everybody. Where's your brothers? Where are your sisters? See, that's the code of the line. The code of the line is love God, love man. Love God, love man. In fact, the whole covenant of Scripture is love God, love man. I want to live a life where... Where you know what? When I see my father, I say, "Lord, when I tasted of your goodness, it was not good enough that I just come. I'm taking everybody with me. I tasted of your goodness, and it was so good, Lord. I want to bring these. People. I want you to live a life like that. I do. This past Wednesday, we finished up school, and um, it was Christmas party time. And so my two kids, my sweet tooth kid, my seven year old Marley, she was in sec- She's in first grade, and they had like a gingerbread." Party with all kinds of candy. Okay, my kid's been eating candy. It feels like for the last three weeks. Okay, just candy after candy, just processed sugars. Okay, as much fructose, high fructose corn syrup as you can get in your body. You know, it's very healthy for you. And um, and so my daughter, I said, I said, babe, what'd you do in class today? And she said, Oh, dad, it was heaven. I said, Heaven? She said, Yeah. There's candy all over the tables. And I said, Really? I said, uh, I said, How do you know there'll be candy in heaven? And she said, Well. It's heaven. And I said, well, I understand that. I said, but, but do you realize that when you die, I said, you can't, you can't, uh, y- y- you know, the scripture never communicates that we're going to have candy. There's certainly have food. And she said, well, listen, before I die, then I'll just pack a bunch of candy. And I said, babe, have you ever seen a U-haw behind a hearse? I said, you can't, you can't take anything with you to heaven. And she looked at me and it got quiet for like a minute. And then my son peeped up from the back seat and he said, dad, that's not true. You can take people with you to heaven. Yes, you can. Where's the boy, Craig? Where's the girl? Did you know this is actually the code of the line because it's the code of the covenant? You know the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments? You know what they are? No other gods before me, no graven images. No Lord's name in vain. Keep Sabbath holy. You know what those are? Love God, love God, love God, love God. You know what the next six are? Next six are honor mom and dad. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet neighbor. What are those? Love man, love man, love man, love man, love man, love man. Here's the commandments. Love God, love God, love God, love God. Love man, love man, love man, love man, love man, love man. That's what it is. In any attempt to not love God and love man ultimately breaks the commandment. You love God, you love man. Can I make a dramatic statement right now? In fact, I want to give it to you. Your relationship with God is only as far as your relationship with fellow man. What we do here matters. How we treat one another matters. It matters to God. You say, Craig, how does it matter? A lawyer came to Jesus and said, what's the greatest commandment? You know what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second one's like, love your neighbor as yourself. And what did he do? He said, who's my neighbor, Lord? And Jesus dropped a bomb on him. You dropped a bomb on me, baby. He dropped a bomb on him. You know how he dropped the bomb? He said the story of the Good Samaritan. All the Jews hated Good Samaritans. You know what God's essentially saying? He's the lawyer, the publican saying, Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, Your neighbor is whoever you hate the most. That's your neighbor. Whoever you have the most prejudice against. Love them like you're loving yourself. Love them like you love yourself. Love God. Love Man, it's the code of the line. That we as a church would live a life where we put aside the labels. I don't care how you vote. I don't care who you are. I don't care the color of your skin. You are a child of God and I love you. Love God. Love man. First Corinthians 3.16, here's what it says. We are being built together to be the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in us. That's why the veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because he no longer dwells in temples made by human hands. He dwells in temples made by his hands. He lives in you. The spirit of God lives in you. People say to me, the church in America is dead. I'm like, bro, I'm alive. Well, the church is dead. The church can't be dead if I'm living because I'm the church. The Spirit of God lives in me. This is not the church. It's a building. We are the church. And as long as we're living, the church is living. So remember who you are. Remember who you are. You're living in a world today where Barna just told us that only two in a ten Americans under the age of 30 believe in attending church is important. That's an all-time low, by the way. 59% 59% of my generation, the millennials that are raised in church, have dropped out of the church never to return again. 35% of my generation, the millennials, have an anti-church stance where they believe that the church actually does more harm than good. And here you sit, and here I sit on the eve of 2020, and I want to tell us and remind us, you are not just a person, you are a plan. Creepy little monkey. Will you stop following me? <sighs> who are you? The question is, who are you? Remember who you are. Maybe you're sitting here today and who you are more than who you have become. You're more than who you've become. And Rafiki said, your father lives in you. But thousands of years before Rafiki said it, the Apostle Paul said it. And he said, your father lives in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember who you are. You should have the heart of a lion for one another. Let me tell you a story in closing. This is Aesop's fable, a story of a gazelle. The gazelles kept standing back to back. And every time the lion would attack, they would face and meet horns. But because of the fighting and the labels and the politics and the race and the denominations, they said, you know, it's probably best if we go our own way. If we separate and one by one, the line picked them off. But As long as their rears were to one another, the line kept meeting horns. The code is this, we are to have the heart. Of the line for each other. And you see it fully displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ. They say to him, if you're the son of God, if you are who say you are, get down. Aren't you a miracle worker? Do something. You can't save yourself. But because he was who he said he was, he would never save himself. Christ never sacrificed others to save self. He sacrificed self to save others. And he says, remember who you are. You are the temple of God. The spirit of God lives in you. You aren't just a person you are a plan. And I want to tell you, church, if you're going to live out God's calling for your life, you're going to have to have some scare tactics. What do you mean, Craig? I need to have be scared and to do something? No, no. I mean, you need to talk about your own personal tactics for when you are scared. Because if you're going to do all that God's called you to do, you're going to be frightened. At times, you're going to be really afraid. You're going to receive the call of God, and you're going to have to determine what you do. And in that moment, you're going to have to predetermine obedience. God doesn't ask us to live by our feelings. He wants us to live by obedience. So I'm going to have to predetermine. I'm going to be obedient even when I feel scared. Because oftentimes, how you feel will be wrong. We have to preload our obedience and determine in advance that whenever I'm afraid and I feel afraid, I will face my fears and I will run to the roar. Do you know how lions hunt? Lions will take two or three lines and put them behind their target acquired. And then they'll send out one line to the front. And the lion will release its roar. And the wildebeest will be scared and the frightened. And it will make the biggest mistake of its life and the last mistake of its life. It will turn and run towards the ambush. That it knew nothing about. So it's so counterintuitive. But it's the safest thing to do when you are afraid you run towards the roar. The only way through your fear is through your fear. It's not out of your fear. It's through the fear. So that when you hear, it's the same way with humans. They're not killed. See, the, the wildebeest can get away if it runs towards the roar. Because one, one lion can't kill it. But what it does is the surprise attack that gets it. And so it is with believers. It's not the roar that gets them. It's that they get fearful and they turn towards the end that the enemy has set for them. Why? When God calls us to it, y'all, it's going to scare you. It's going to scare us. And intentionally so, because if there were no risk, if there was no element of fear, we wouldn't ever need faith. So we have to, in order to be lion-hearted, we have to be fearless. We have to be fearless. That's the heart of a lion. It's an enlarged heart that is fearless To run with the word that God has given us. Why? Because that faith is a chance to trust God. When you feel frightened, you could say, you know what? I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do that job again. I'm going to go at it again. I'm going to engage my friend again. I'm going to pray for my husband again. I'm going to give it a chance. I'm going to engage that individual again. I'm going to do whatever it takes until hell is empty or heaven is full or I die trying. I'm going to be fearless. Lord, give me the heart of a lion. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.